Welcome to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. There are many promises made to the people of Israel, but now that the people of Israel is broader than the national Israelites, what do those promises mean? How does the church relate to Israel? You're listening to Israel and the Church by Reverend Peter Yonker. Our Bible reading tonight for our meditation for our sermon is Genesis 12, verses 1 through 4. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 4. So a short reading, but uh, it's going to be a long sermon. I'm just warning you ahead of time. And I want it to be uh, audience participation. So if, if you could keep your Bibles close at hand, you won't need them for a while, but later in the sermon, I'm going to ask, look at some passages with you and point to them, and I'd like you to read along with me if you're willing, okay? But let us begin with this promise that the Lord makes, this foundational promise that the Lord makes to Abraham. The Lord had said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. This is the word of the Lord. So tonight we're going to have a teaching sermon. We're going to um, dig into a biblical and doctrinal subject that I think is very important. And that subject, as you already know, is the relationship between the church, us, God's people, and Israel. And by Israel, I mean the nation of Israel, ethnic Jews, the Jewish people. What is the relationship between our church and the Jewish people. That is a really important and very present biblical theme. That's something you hear about. You hear the letter writers of the New Testament struggle with that issue already then. Paul struggles with it in Ephesians and in Galatians and Romans. It's an issue that comes up repeatedly in Acts. So it's an important biblical issue, but it's also an important contemporary issue. The relationship between Israel and the church is something that Christians, church people, disagree on um, quite sharply sometimes. And it's also an issue that has real-life implications, um, political implications. A lot of people advocate certain policies or push the U.S. government to implement certain policies, and they do that based on their view of the relationship between Israel and and the church. Now, I know that this is an issue that, um, if you don't have a sense of it, let me try to give you an indication of where this shows up. Uh, Maybe as you watch TV preachers, or maybe someone sent you a video on the internet, or maybe you've opened the internet and watched a YouTube preacher yourself, and you've heard this preacher say something like this, we must support Israel. The church has to be on Israel's side. The Bible mandates that God's people support the nation of Israel. Whoever blesses Israel will be blessed, and whoever curses Israel will be cursed. It's right in Scripture. We have to be on Israel's side in all these political matters. 
That's something that you hear a lot these days. Prominent preachers say this stuff. John Hagee, I don't know if you know who that is, if you can picture him, big TV preacher, he says things like this. Um, Dr. David Jeremiah also will say things like this. Hagee will say it in a big bombastic way. Jeremiah will say it in a nice, calm, reasonable way. Okay? And if you go to your local Christian bookstore and you go to the prophecy section, which is enormous, right? There are books on prophecy, predicting what's happening in the future. Most of those books also come from this perspective. We need to be on Israel's side. When John Hagee and David Jeremiah say these things, they are obviously calling the church to a specific set of policy agendas. They're, they're, it's a political call that they're making in their sermons. And, and so I want to, it's important, and I want to address, and when they make that political call, what's underneath it is a view of Israel and the church. And where does that come from? Both these men are what we call dispensationalists. I think you've all heard that word before, dispensationalists. Dispensationalism is a stream of Christian thinking that is actually relatively new. It's one kind of premillenarianism, okay? Um, I'm not going to explain what that is. That's an old view. Dispensationalism is relatively new. It started in the early 1800s with a man named John Darby and the way that he read the New Testament. Now, Dispensationalism is characterized by a whole set of doctrines. I'm not going to go through them all. There are many, many points where we agree with dispensationalists. I want you to be clear about that. But we do disagree historically with their view of Israel and the church. And it's not just us. Reformed thinkers of all stripes disagree with dispensationalists, as do Lutherans. Calvin held a different view. Luther held a different view. The Catholic Church holds a different view. The Orthodox Church holds a view. All of these churches hold a view closer to what we believe than what the dispensationalists believe about the relationship between Israel and the church. I'm preaching on this tonight not because I want to have bashed the dispensationalist Sunday, but because their voice is very loud. I know that many of you watch David Jeremiah sometimes, and that's fine. Um, I know that some of you read um, some of these prophecy books, and it can get confusing, and people wonder, what do we actually believe as a church? Well, I'm here to tell you tonight. What do the dispensationalists believe? The dispensationalists believe, when it comes to Israel and the church, that God has two covenants. There are two covenants happening right now, one with Israel and one with the church. And both these covenants have different rules and different rituals and different festivals, and God is using them both to work salvation in these two different groups of people. In the dispensationalist way of reading Scripture, both these two covenants are progressing and will end in very different ways. The church's covenant will end in the rapture. Suddenly Christ will return, we will be lifted out of heaven, we will lifted up to heaven, and we will be there with the Lord forever. That happens before the tribulation. That will be the end of what they call the age or the dispensation of the church. Things get really interesting for the Jewish covenant, for his covenant with Israel, according to the dispensationalists, 
right after the rapture, because that kicks in the seven years of tribulation. And during the seven years of tribulation, there's conflict in the earth, there's chaos, the Antichrist comes, everything is mayhem, and it goes on for seven years until Christ returns to Jerusalem. Jesus comes down in the flesh, and he comes to Jerusalem, and he reigns there. And he will reign there for a thousand years. That's the millennium in the dispensationalist view. And it's at this point, say the dispensationalists, that the Jews recognize that Jesus really is the Messiah. And they come back to Jerusalem, and Israel is established as the greatest among the nations. The temple is rebuilt. All the Old Testament sacrifices start. And for a thousand years, Israel is the number one nation in the earth, and all the nations look to Israel. That is the road of salvation for the Jews. That's how these two covenants go, and that's how they both end. Now, in that end story, there are all kinds of beliefs, and I'm not going to get into them all tonight. We don't, as Christian Reformed people, believe in the rapture. We don't, as Christian Reformed people, have the same view of the thousand years as the dispensationalists do I have two other sermons about that. If you want, I can send them to you. I'm not going to talk about those things tonight. I'm going to just talk about that issue of the two separate tracks and the true different ends for the stories of Israel and the church. Where does this notion of two tracks come from? This is really important. It comes from this very basic, different way of reading the Old Testament. The dispensationalists, when they read God's promises and the words of the prophets of the Old Testament, when they hear a promise being made to Israel, they think that promise is being made to the nation state of Israel, to ethnic Israel, right? To the, the, the political people. That's how they understand it. So, for example, I read Genesis 12 tonight. When dispensationalists read Genesis 12, they hear God making a promise to the nation, to the people of Israel, the nation state of Israel. And they say, whoever blesses Israel, God will bless, and whoever curses the nation of Israel, God will curse. And indeed, in the Old Testament, that's kind of what you see happening, right? Whoever, however people treat Israel, Depends, that, that, that will show you whether they are blessed or whether they are cursed. In Egypt, so long as the Egyptians are going along with Joseph, it goes pretty well for them. When they turn against the people of Israel and Joseph's descendants, things go badly. The plagues come. They are cursed. In Babylon, when people, when Nebuchadnezzar listens to Daniel, things go pretty well. When he turns against Daniel, right, things go worse. Whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. Okay. Modern dispensationalists say, though, that that doesn't just apply to the Old Testament Israel. That applies to modern Israel. That the same promises and the same dynamic that happened to the people in Egypt also apply to the nation-state of Israel run by Benjamin Netanyahu today. I listened to a lot of dispensationalist sermons this week, watched some videos. Here's an example, David Jeremiah in a sermon that he gave back in 2018 on this text, on Genesis 12, said this, God's promises and the prophecies of his word are challenging us to put Israel 
at the center of our prayers and our purposes and our protection. Always got to be on the side of Israel. How does that belief that Israel is the center of those Old Testament promises, how does that end up in two tracks? How do you go from that Old Testament idea that it's the nation of Israel those prophecies are talking about to this idea of two separate covenant tracks? Well, because not all the promises that the prophets have made have been fulfilled by, in political Israel. The Old Testament says lots of amazing things that will happen to Israel. It will become chief among the nations. The nations will stream to it. Kings will rebuild her walls. Jerusalem will be supreme. All those promises are made to Israel in the Old Testament. And they haven't been fulfilled yet. Just a couple of examples. Joel 3 talks about a day when the Lord will restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem and will put all the nations in judgment in the valley of Jehoshaphat. That hasn't happened yet, historically. Isaiah 60 says that foreigners will rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and kings will serve the people of Jerusalem. There's no point from Isaiah to presently where that has historically happened for the nation of Israel and the city of Jerusalem. The end of Ezekiel prophesies that the temple will be rebuilt and Israel will return and all the sacrifices will start again. Historically, that has not happened on the scale that Ezekiel describes it in the history of Israel. So you read all those Old Testament promises and if you read them as applying only to the nation state, you have to say, well, there has to be this other track. There has to be this way in which God fulfills those promises to the nation of Israel. So the dispensationalists have come up with this scheme where those promises are filled in the millennium. When Jesus comes back to reign in Jerusalem, that's when all those Old Testament prophecies are going to be fulfilled for Israel. That's where the two tracks come from. This is complicated. I hope you can follow me. And this is significant because once you have this track that sees things moving towards the millennium, where Jerusalem needs to be reestablished as chief among the nations, where the kings need to stream to Jerusalem, and where Jerusalem needs to become supreme, and Israel needs to become supreme, what happens is you have the grounds for all these policy decisions. So, for example, the capital of, Jerusalem, of Israel was moved from Tel Aviv to, or no, the ambassador, the, the embassy of the United States was moved from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, okay? And that was made for political reasons, a whole bunch of reasons, and there may be very good reasons, I'm not arguing against that decision, for moving the embassy of the United States from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. But for many, many people, the reason they pushed this was not because it made geopolitical sense, but because they thought it was moving us closer to that end time scenario described in the dispensationalist scheme. Jerusalem has to be occupied by Israel. The temple has to be rebuilt. And when it is, we will usher in the end times. That is what you hear. Now, with respect, and I mean with respect, I want to disagree with our dispensationalist brothers and sisters. 
We agree with people like Dr. Jer David Jeremiah on many, many things, but we disagree about this. And here's why we differ. Here's the difference between the way the dispensationalists read Genesis 12 and the way we read it. When we hear God say to Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation from you, and whoever blesses that nation will be blessed, and whoever curses that nation will be cursed, we hear that as a promise for the people of God. Not for the political nation of Israel or the ethnic Jews. We hear that promise more broadly for the whole people of God. When God promises he's going to make a great nation from Abraham, he's talking about all his people throughout history. And we are part of that promise. We are part of that family. We are included in that promise to Israel as well. And this gets really tricky. Because in the Old Testament right? There was no distinction between political Israel or virtually no distinction between political Israel and the people of God. They're pretty much the same thing, right? Because all the Jews were the ones who received God's promises, although there were always hints that it was going to be wider. People like Rahab, people like Ruth being brought into the covenant showed that God's intention was never just to talk to political Israel, but always meant to be something broader. And sure enough, as Israel went along, Jesus comes from Israel, he dies and rises again, and the Holy Spirit is sent, and all of a sudden, the people of God sprouts outward at Pentecost to include people from every nation, tribe, and language. The promise in Genesis 12 is the seed of God's people. For a long time, God's people is the trunk of Israel. But at Pentecost, the branch of the trees go wide to include Edomites and Parthians and Medes and Americans and Canadians and, yes, even Palestinians. We're all children of Abraham. We're all part of the same covenant tree. So, and here's the, this is the, the exegetical, the interpretive point. In the Old Testament, when you hear a prophecy made to Israel, or when you hear a prophecy made to Jacob, don't think of political Israel. Think of the people of God. Think of the church. Those promises are not for that political entity. Those promises are for the broader people of God, his people as that will be measured throughout history, which includes us. And that is how we tend to read the Old Testament. Here's an example. Isaiah 43. I read that at the beginning of this service, right? We love Isaiah 43. It has a promise that we tell to our children and we tell to ourselves. This is what the Lord says, He who formed you, O Israel, I have called you by name and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. And we love those promises and we apply them to ourselves. In the song, How Firm a Foundation, we sing those promises and we apply them to ourselves. We do that even though the prophet is talking to Israel, right? Israel is the one addressed in that prophecy, but we understand that we are part of Israel. We're part of that same covenant tree. Those promises are for us. Okay, that's what we believe. That's what we teach. Is that biblical? 
Is it reasonable for us to think that those Old Testament promises that speak of Israel also belong to us? Yes. And here's the participative part of tonight's sermon. Let's turn to some New Testament texts which show that there aren't two covenants, but only one. And we'll start with Galatians 3, verses 26 through 29. Galatians 3, verses 26 to 29. And follow along as I read this. And as I read it, think about what is Paul saying between the relationship between Israel and the church? Is there one or is there two groups? Verse 26, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abram's seed and heirs according to the promise. I think that's, that's really, really clear, right? We're all Abram's seed. We're all part of that promise of Genesis 12. There's no more Jews and Gentiles. There's only one covenant, not two. Okay, let's flip a few pages ahead to Galatians 6, verses 15 and 16, in case you're still not convinced. Galatians 6, 15 and 16. What does Paul say here? Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision mean anything, he says, okay? Very clearly putting together Jews and Gentiles, right? And then he says this, peace, this is verse 16, peace be on all who follow this rule, the Israel of God. He's calling us the Israel of God. We are the Israel of God. All those who are in Christ Jesus, we are the Israel of God. There is one covenant, one covenant tree that encompasses both the Jews and us. Okay, let's go now to Ephesians chapter 2. This is part of a larger argument in verses 11 through 22, but I'm going to read verse 15. Throughout 11 through 22, Paul is making this passionate and well-known argument that the dividing wall of hostility has fallen between Jews and Gentiles. And then he says this, verse 15. God's purpose, and here he's, he's referring to the purpose of sending Jesus to the cross. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. Not two covenants, one new humanity. Coming out of Israel, flowering into the tree, which encompasses all nations, tribes, and languages. Okay, finally, let's turn to Romans 11. And I'm going to start at verse 17. Romans 9 through 11 are the most important biblical texts about this issue. Romans 11, we'll start at verse 17. Here's the image Paul's using. He's comparing, as I've been doing throughout this sermon, he's comparing the covenant to a tree, and he's saying Israel was the original tree, an olive tree, but when Christ came, many of the Jews rejected Jesus, and he says it's like branches got broken off the olive tree of God's promise. That's the image that we come to in verse 17. If some of the branches have been broken off, Many Jews don't accept Jesus. And you, Gentiles, though a wild olive shoot coming from the outside, have been grafted in among the others 
and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, share in the covenant promises, do not consider yourselves to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You are in the root of Israel. You are part of Israel. You're in that tree. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Now let's jump down to 23. And if they, the Jews, do not persist in their unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft the Jews in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into the cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will those, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Paul is saying something wonderful here. He's holding out hope that the Jews will return. In Romans 11, he holds out strong hope that all the Jews will return to Christ and acknowledge that he is Lord. And that reminds us that our relationships with the Jews is special. The Jews are our brothers and sisters in a way that you know, Buddhists and atheists and other people aren't. There's a common heritage there that is different. It is special. And we have this very real hope that they will return and acknowledge the Messiah. But if they do, it will not be through some different covenant. They're being grafted into the same tree. It's so clear, right? If I had time, I'd go to passages in Matthew and Acts that make the same point. If I had time, I'd show you how those Old Testament prophecies about how the nations would flock to Israel and Israel become, and Jerusalem will become supreme. Most of those were fulfilled at Pentecost. But I don't have time to say all those things. I only want to say there is only one covenant. And when the prophets make promises to Israel, those promises are for God's people altogether and not for the nation state. That's the testimony of Scripture, and in my judgment, it's very clear. I don't particularly like writing sermons that are about our disagreements with other Christians. I would much prefer to write sermons that talk about the much more serious disagreements we have with people out there. But this is important. It's important because it affects public policy. And it's important because I believe it is confusing many Christian reform questions and members of LaGrave because we hear those conflicting voices. This fixation with Israel is the engine of a lot of wild speculation and what I think is, is not great public policy. There are a lot of good reasons to support Israel. Don't get me wrong. I'm not speaking out against our nation's support of Israel. Uh, heaven knows the Jews have been through a lot and they need our support. But reading the Old Testament promises in the wrong way is not one of those good reasons. Our Lord is working his purposes out. He will bring his end time in his own good time. We will not be able to push it along. He will do it when he chooses to do it. And until that day, we stay faithful in prayer. We love each other well. We love our neighbors well. We witness to the truth and the lordship of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
and we wait with joy. Amen. Lord God, your word is a complicated thing, so complicated that um, we don't always agree about it. Brothers and sisters in the same family don't always agree. You know that, Lord. And we pray that those disagreements will not become contentious or fractious. We pray that those, good those, those disagreements that we have may always be good-natured. And we pray that whatever we do, we may look together to you for our hope in this world. In Christ's name we pray it. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.